Welcome to On The Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast on the big events and trends shaping the region. My name is Ambrin Zaman, and I'll be looking at rising violence against women in Turkey. Almost daily, there are stories of women being stalked, attacked, and killed by men, more often than not by their husbands. Around four out of 10 women in Turkey say they were subjected to physical and or sexual violence, according to the Turkish government's own research, but that dates from 2014, and it's not produced any further figures. The government's decision to withdraw from the Istanbul Convention on Preventing Violence Against Women, a document that it spearheaded in 2011, has added to the culture of impunity, women's rights groups say. Turkey, a majority Muslim country, was among the first countries in the world to give women the right to vote. The ruling Justice and Development Party introduced further reforms in the early days of its rule, some of it groundbreaking, such as criminalizing marital rape and stating that women are equal to men in the family. So what's changed and why? With us here to discuss these matters is Emma Sinclair Webb, Turkey Director for Human Rights Watch and the author of an exhaustive new report on domestic violence against women. Welcome to the programme, Emma. It's really great to have you today on our show. Thank you. So you've just done this amazing report on violence against women. And um, I just want to start off by asking you about the government's withdrawal from the Istanbul Convention and, and what that actually means, what sort of message it carries and what the implications are for women in their everyday lives. Um, the government says that it's enacted sweeping legislation to deter and penalize violence against women. Therefore, there is no need for this convention. Uh, and even as women's groups challenge the move in court, the government is seeking to ban a women's platform against femicides. Why has the government turned against the convention and does its defense hold any water? Well, um, the Turkish government, actually the Turkish president, uh, President Erdogan, uh, issued a decree a year ago uh, pulling Turkey out of the Istanbul Convention. And the convention is uh, a Council of Europe convention, which is really the gold standard for uh, protecting women from violence, combating domestic violence. And it's a, a convention that, you know, Turkey was the first country to sign up to. It's the first country to withdraw from it. So that's pretty extraordinary. Um, Turkey's argument really is that it has its own legislation in place. Uh, and we do know that its legislation uh, in place is largely based on the Istanbul Convention. Um, and that this legislation is somehow enough to uh, tackle gender-based violence, violence against women, domestic violence uh, in all its forms. Um, and that, uh, you know, is the Turkish government's argument. Also, the Turkish government says, you know, we have a very sophisticated uh, legal framework uh, for combating violence against women. So we don't need uh, an international convention, a foreign convention, to somehow uh, guide us in this endeavor. Um, it's a very worrying argument because it basically uh, gives the message somehow that uh, 
domestic fighting domestic violence um, violence against women isn't a kind of political priority withdrawing from such a important convention definitely has sent this uh, political message that, that to ordinary people and to uh, around the country that somehow deprioritizes uh, the struggle against um, violence against women um, however going in the opposite direction turkey's undoubtedly uh, made uh, lots of uh, attempts to prove uh, that it really is very committed to protecting women from violence. And that's a, a rather paradoxical situation. On the one hand, you pull out a convention. On the other hand, you make your domestic efforts to uh, sort of shore up the protection of women. Um, yes, and at the same time, as you mentioned, uh, we see another undermining sign in which you know a, a, a very successful campaigning platform called the we will protect we will end femicides platform is uh, faced with a closure case this, it's an association that was set up um really to campaign on murders of women by uh, partners spouses uh men unknown to them victims of sexual violence uh, who were killed it looks at all of those murders and it compiles its own data on those and murders so I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but one very important point that your paper makes is the fact that the Istanbul Convention allows for independent monitoring of all of this. And now that's gone, right? Yes, no, absolutely. So with with the um, withdrawal from the convention, you have the, the, the group of experts that were tasked with uh, sort of reviewing Turkey's record every few years uh, are now not able to do that anymore because a lot of conventions have with them monitoring committees or bodies uh, that uh, examine a country's compliance with uh, what's in the convention. So that's gone too, unfortunately. Yeah, and so, I mean, on the one hand, they claim we have all these laws and they do, uh, but on the other hand, they seem to be just, you know, uh, inch by inch, or I mean, depending on your viewpoint, you may say kilometer by kilometer, hacking away. Um, at, at all the defenses uh, that women have against this violence. And the met political messaging is also, I think, quite scary. Um, and and, and your, as your excellent report makes very clear, none of these existing laws are actually being implemented. Uh, can you just cite several of these cases, um, you know, that you mentioned in your report? Tell us a bit about, you know, what's happening to these women, actually, and how in some cases... There, there has been some redress, but in others, absolutely none, and probably, um, you know, more often none than than some, right? Um, yes. Well, the, I mean, the cases themselves are, uh, you know, uh, extremely worthy of mention because it brings to the whole uh, subject home. Really, um, a lot of the time when we research reports like this, we of course have to look at government data. We have to, you know, interview a lot of different authorities, and we have indeed talked a lot to the police, um, to judges, to prosecutors, and and that was enormously helpful in seeing their view of the challenges they face. Uh, and then we uh, assessed eighteen cases in in great detail, really great detail. We looked at the case histories of how women who had a history of domestic violence had uh, gone to the authorities to complain, and usually they go to the police first of all. Most women start by going to the police if they need protection uh, against uh, a partner, a spouse, uh, or an ex-partner. Um, and, and, and then they get from court something called a protection order. 
Uh, and, and in Turkish law, there are different kinds of protection orders, but some of these are restraining orders called preventive orders. And it actually tells the man to keep away from the woman. Um, so the victim, uh, you know, gets this, secures this from a court um, and the man is not supposed to approach her or the, the perpetrator of violence is not supposed to approach her. What we see is that uh, in the cases we've examined is that women have time and time again applied for uh, protection, uh, got preventive orders, restraining orders. But in fact, the violence continues because somehow these court orders are not implemented. And, and we have, um, you know, perhaps one of the most dramatic cases, very well known to the Turkish public, is the case of Aisha Tuba Aslan in Eskishehir, a town in Western Turkey, who uh, is on record as having complained 23 times to the police and prosecutors for protection from her abusive former husband. Uh, she divorced her husband in the course of uh, the violence and the while seeking protection. Uh, and a few months later, um, he killed her. Uh, a knife attack with a meat cleaver, I mean, extremely violent. Uh, she died of her injuries later in hospital. Now, in this case, uh, it's the prosecutor's office who said, yes, she complained 23 times. Now, that's an incredible indictment of uh, Turkey's, um, you know, police, uh, courts, prosecutors, that how could a woman complain that much and still end up dead? Uh, yeah. Despite amazing. the fact she was known, very well known to the authorities. There were cases against her husband ongoing at the time of her murder. Uh, she'd received protective orders, restraining orders. They had not been implemented. Um, so that's one case, a very well-known case. Then there are other cases where, you know, women have gone and complained. One woman's uh, husband, Ramzio Yoldash, her husband was released from prison. He came and threatened her and he escaped from prison. He was in an open prison, in fact, which allows a man to get, you know, regularly get out of prison, in fact. He came and threatened her um, and she sought police protection. She got uh, a restraining order. He came and killed her in the street. So in that case, very interestingly, uh, we heard from the police themselves um, via the Interior Ministry that, you know, nine police officers were, did receive some kind of disciplinary penalty um, for failing to protect Remzie Yoldash, killed in Diyarbakir. Well, women are among the best organized groups in Turkish civil society. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you'd agree. I, I think you would agree. And Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And they, they include pious, uh, you know, uh, Islamic women um, who have been very active in, uh, in sort of women's groups. And of course, principally, we uh, first heard of them when they were working to ease the bands of the Islamic headscarf. And we had an ex exemplary show of solidarity in the early days of Erdogan's rule where, you know, so-called secular women were supporting them, right? And these women have been very active in, in the grassroots uh, sort of uh, level, helping Erdogan during his elections and, you know, they must be feeling very, very let down as well, I would imagine. I mean, what is the culture that informs this misogyny? I think it would be, you know, wrong to sort of fall into the stereotype of, oh, this is Islamic. It's because the government is Islamic. 
Um, absolutely. I think you know, when looking at violence against women, domestic violence in any society, you have to see uh, there are so many different root causes and so many aspects to a culture of misogyny. Um, it's not all in the hands of the government, the state uh, at all. It's a social uh, problem in, in all over the world still. So uh, I think what we do see is uh, a wave of right populism through many countries in which uh, women's bodies and women are up for grabs as, as they are. They become weaponized in political debates, uh, whether from Hungary to Poland or Turkey. Um, the focus on women, on their status, on issues like gender equality, gender ideology, uh, is very much played out in relation to uh, uh, the rights of women and undermining um, the visibility of women in society. So I think uh, it's not at all particular to Turkey. The trouble with withdrawing from the convention was that uh, Turkey assumes, I think, the government assumes that you can kind of dispense with ideas of gender equality. And, and, and indeed, the president is on record as sort of uh, basically refuting the notion of gender equality in favor of saying that men and women are different um, and that women need to be protected. Now, this is a conservative, paternalistic view of women. Uh, and yes, that could be a protective view of women, but it also, it's a view that legitimizes discrimination. And once you see women as inferior, um, as not equal with men, then I think you really are, you have a big problem to argue against violence against women, because once you're allowing for discrimination against women, then you open the way to violence. And I think that's one of the the, the ways in which the government has contributed to a culture of violence, um, oh, yeah. which, which, as I say, is not entirely uh, coming from the state, from the government. It's a, it's a social phenomenon, very, you know, very complex, complex issue in every society. Um, I mean, for sure. I mean, for sure, I agree. Um, um, especially, you know, the, the sort of messaging from Erdogan. And before I get to that, though, I think it's worth reminding our audience that one of the reasons the government cited for getting out of the convention was the fact that it claimed it somehow encouraged um, so-called deviant behavior, uh, homosexuality, uh, gay rights, that sort of, sort of thing that clashes with Turkey's um, traditions, culture, right? And that's something that you see also, as you pointed out, in these uh, populist sort of autocratic governments in places like Poland and Hungary as well. It's, it's kind of a culture war, right? It is. It absolutely is. And, uh, you know, it's again, it's weaponizing. Uh, it's attempting to weaponize homophobia um, uh, to sort of produce a very divisive, bemanas view of a society. Those who, uh, you know, are on the side of uh, LGBT rights, those of us who are pious, pious conservatives, you know, it's sort of, it's a very, it pits different parts of society against each other. And, and, and that's, again, it's played out, as we said before, or over women's bodies, but it's also played out over um, LGBT rights as well. And the idea of homosexuality uh, as somehow dangerous to Turkish society, yeah, but, somehow I mean, dangerous to the family. That's, that's the, the argument that's made. The hypocrisy, made. though, is mind-boggling because you see 
Erdogan, you know, posing with Bülent Ersoy, Turkey's best known sort of, I guess, would we call him her trans figure, famous singer. And I was just watching TV today, Turkish TV today, and it was a, a sh cooking program. Um, so you had this well, a guy who was obviously, I would say, gay. I hope I'm not being politically incorrect, very effeminate, etc., with his body language and all, who was teaching these women how to cook. And, you know, half of them had, I would say, more than half were wearing headscarves and it all seemed perfectly fine and normal. So it's sort of, you know, kind of out of touch with the reality on the ground where there is much more, I hate the word tolerance, but, you know, uh, acceptance i guess anyway but i think that's back... right i think that's absolutely right and you know for years pride's been banned but uh, you know people didn't have a problem with pride it was growing in popularity and visibility in turkey so having bans on you know lgbt rights sort of pride and other kind of events is just it, it, it it's ludicrous it's a it's a government hypocrisy for sure yeah, but getting back to Erdogan and his messaging, well, uh, the big news uh, for much of the week was the fact that he was referring to demonstrators who took part in the uh, mass Gezi protest back in 2013 as sluts. I mean, so often he sort of uses that kind of language. Um, in fact, I, I was subjected to it myself, as you recall. Um, he called me names in public uh, um, what did he call me? Indecent woman and um, that sort of thing. <laughs> so so that, that, that also is very troubling, isn't it? That it's coming at the highest level. It's absolutely, absolutely troubling. I mean, it's a kind of hate speech, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's again, it's demonizing a part of the population. We've got a lot of discourse going on, very xenophobic discourse against refugees going on in Turkey. We all know that too. Um, but calling, yeah, terming the Gezi supporters sluts, again, uh, you know, it's this question of trying to produce very divisive politics, a politics based on fomenting divisiveness, uh, dividing people, dividing the society. You choose between them and us, them the immoral ones, us, the good ones. It, uh, it, yeah, it's a very crude tactic, but it's highly offensive. And I think it miss, I think it's, um, I, I don't think it plays well, actually, in Turkish society anymore. People have better things to worry about. They're worried about the economy. They're worried about, uh, you know, whether they'll be putting food on the table. I think uh, hearing part of the population referred to as sluts isn't really uh what you'd expect but, from but a state, a state's up, though, and it gets picked up at least by the men, because I, I, I you know, in my own case, I, I, after Erdogan said that, then his bodyguard, one of his security details, called me um, a whore in Washington. It was sort of quite unsettling. And then on social media, that, that when people were attacking me, they kept calling me that. So, you know, he, he sort of, as I said, legitimizes it. On the one hand, as you say, people have far greater problems. But then on the other, you know, these problems also probably um, sort of amplify the, the, the violence in a sense, because, you know, when people are having problems, they can't pay the bills, they can't afford to put bread on the table. Uh, I think that also breeds violence, doesn't it? And so if you as the president are sort of targeting women, um, makes the problem worse. I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, there's a very toxic culture on Twitter 
um, around this and uh, extremely abusive. Uh, but we see this, you know, in many places in the world, of course, this uh, extremely uh, awful uh, kind of a backlash against Me Too is going on in the United States. We see that um, just with the result in the uh, Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Uh, so th- it's not particular to Turkey, this uh, attack on women. I think there is a toxic culture against women in many places. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And and they do seem, people like, you know, Erdogan do seem very threatened by women, the way he sort of goes after, you know, like Canan Kaftancıoğlu, the head of the Istanbul uh, branch of the, the main opposition party, for example, Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm Meral Akşener of the of the the other another opposition party, the E yes, Party. Indeed, indeed, absolutely. And so I would like to end by asking you, Emma, who has, you know, who have been, uh, you know, doing this amazing work for all these years in Turkey, and having to talk to lots of men, um, you know, prosecutors, police chiefs, ministers, uh, local bureaucrats. I mean. Ha- Have you found it difficult as a woman dealing with them? Has that been like a problem for you? Made you more vulnerable? No, I think I think the thing is, as time goes on, um, you uh, get very used to this, of course, very male culture of the bureaucracy of ministries. Uh, I have had many meetings with government officials over time. Uh, I go in as a researcher uh, and I, uh, you know, I suppose you become somehow uh, insensitized to your, uh, the fact that you are a woman researcher doing this work. Uh, in a way, it makes you rather steely, I would say, <laughs> when faced with so many men. Um, that has been my experience. But I go into such meetings, of course, you know, coming from, a, I'm British, uh, I'm, I come from a I'm white middle-class woman. I have, you know, privilege on my side of another kind. Uh, now, many women don't have that. And so I think it depends on uh, where you are from and who you are, depending on how you handle these sort of situations and how you are seen. Um, but of course, I've chosen to disru- disregard a lot of uh, the very sexist kind of approach that often does prevail. I mean, oh, I, well, look, you've been doing great work and, and the CIS report is really good and very important. And thank you so very much for taking the time to, to speak to us today, Emma. Uh, keep up the brilliant work and hope to have you on our program again soon. Thank, thank you very much, Amber. And it's been a, a real pleasure. And uh, maybe I can say one more thing is that, you know, we re- everyone needs to continue working on this endemic problem of domestic violence, violence against women, it's a long struggle. Uh, it's not only about Turkey withdrawing from the Istanbul Convention. Uh, Turkey has a lot to do uh, to enforce its own laws. Uh, we do see that there are efforts by some uh, police and judges, and there are you know, people who are really trying to do a good job, but uh, it, they've been very undermined in their efforts by the government policy that's led to the pull-out withdrawal from the convention. Yeah, no, it doesn't get nearly enough attention, I feel, because, you know, people are much more focused on other stuff like, you know, NATO and Ukraine and um, all of those issues when, you know, this is so important, affects half of the population. 
so yeah that we have to keep look you know keep our eyes uh trained on it and keep reporting on it thank you again emma thank you very much Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis. brings us to the end of what I hope was yet another interesting conversation about an issue that should deeply concern us all. Don't forget to take a look at Emma's report, which is linked on our website. Thank you and goodbye.